This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 11th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm talks with Sarah Crespi about the week's most interesting online news stories. And then we hear from Brendan Lake about a new computational model that learns to make concept generalizations the way humans do. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what gives cockroach feces its attractive smell. <laughs> well, attractive to cockroaches, at least. Exactly. Apparently, we didn't always know what cockroaches found so attractive about each other, but now we know. It's poop. <laughs> what were some of the other options for attracting cucarachas to each other? <laughs> well, we know that cockroaches like to congregate, which is kind of gross, but anybody who's seen a group of cockroaches together knows that's true. Scientists didn't know how they talked to each other to figure that out. They thought it had something to do with pheromones. These are sort of these odor-like molecules that even people seem to have, and they have kind of mysterious functions, but some of them may be responsible for us, for example, finding another person attractive. For insects, it's thought that they do help them communicate, but it wasn't exactly clear where these pheromones were. In the cockroaches' cases, how they were using them to tell each other, like, hey, let's, let's hang out. And in the end, it comes down to gut microbes. The bugs inside of these bugs were the uncontrolled variable that weren't letting researchers kind of figure out where the pheromones were coming from. Right. How did the researchers control that in this study? Well, they raised some of the cockroaches in germ-free cages so that they wouldn't have these microbes. The idea is that if you don't have these microbes anymore, they're not going to get into your poop and they're not going to be able to create these molecules that might be signaling other cockroaches. So how do the germ-free cockroaches feel about germy cockroaches? Well, the cockroaches, first of all, were just not very attracted to the cockroaches that were pooping the germ-free poop. And the scientists deduced the reason is because they don't have these pheromones in their poop. A cockroaches overall preferred the smell of any poop, whether it was germ-free or not germ-free, to sterile water. So there's something about poop itself that cockroaches are finding attractive, but especially the poop from the cockroaches that were not raised in germ-free environments seem to have these molecules that are 
fostering communication between these bugs. And to sort of close the loop, the researchers created synthetic versions of these compounds, and the compounds themselves caused the cockroaches to aggregate. Is this the first time that gut microbes have been shown to play a role in chemical communication? Scientists have seen this in desert locusts and in hyenas. And in hyenas, it allows these animals to be able to tell their relatives from their non-relatives. So we know that these things play an important role. If these chemicals can be synthesized, can cockroaches then be lured away from our homes to aggregate elsewhere? The applications of this is if we want to attract a big group of cockroaches, and the reason you might want to do that is if you're trying to lead them into a trap, this might be a better way to do it. Next up, we have a story on fighting hypothetical habitable planets. More than 1,000 exoplanets have been spotted by the Kepler Observatory, but very few of those would meet the criteria required to be called habitable. What are the requirements for a livable planet, Dave? Largely what we're looking for is a good temperature, a temperature that's not too hot, not too cold, which means the planet really can't be too close or too far from its parent star. But there are some other considerations as well, not just about the relationship between the planet and its star, but the relationship between where that solar system is in the galaxy it lives in. Now, if you're close to the center of a galaxy, that might seem like a good place to be because that's where a lot of stars are. But actually, it's actually bad to be where a lot of stars are because every once in a while, a star will explode and fry everything around it with destructive radiation. And so it actually would theoretically be very bad to be near the center of a galaxy. And in this study, what the researchers did was try to model where to look for hypothetical habitable planets. You know, Kepler's only looking at a portion of the Milky Way. But this new modeling aims to study a much broader swath of space. What region did they focus on? The researchers simulated three galaxies in this computer model. So they had the Milky Way, but then they had two of our neighbors. They had the Andromeda and the Triangulum galaxies. And the reason they wanted to look at multiple galaxies is because they didn't want to just look at where might the habitable regions be in the galaxies themselves, but how these galaxies interact with each other over time and how that may influence where the habitable regions are. And in fact, the researchers ran these simulations for billions of years, at least in simulator time, to figure out how these galaxies evolved over time. So that's the big scale, three galaxies nearby each other. What about on a smaller scale? What do they look at within the galaxies? Well, here again, they were looking at where does it pay to be in the galaxy if you want to have life. And they found, as suspected, that when planets form towards the center of galaxies, they were not habitable planets. They tend to get fried by radiation, supernova explosions, and taking in these other galaxies into account, collisions with other small galaxies, which can cause a whole lot of other problems. And in fact, at least in the Milky Way, the regions where you really want to be if you want to have life is actually in the outskirts, is in the wispy streams of stars that are flung far beyond the main body of the Milky Way. Does this suggest some directions for observatories down the road that are looking for planets? Right, exactly. So this could really give astronomers a sense of where to train their telescopes because obviously you don't want to be looking for life in a region where life is very unlikely to evolve. Lastly, we have a story on what we can learn about dog domestication from free-ranging street dogs. I think this is a really creative study. What do dogs do without humans around? What does this tell us about their evolutionary history? But let's start with the specifics here. 
mother dogs will steal meat snacks from their pups. Right, Dave? Well, right. At least we know that happens in street dogs. And street dogs are dogs that live in places like India, where you have a lot of feral dog populations. Now, these dogs are domesticated animals, but they're not pets. They live on the streets. Sometimes people will feed them, and sometimes they'll scavenge for scraps, but they're certainly not living in anybody's home. And this observation that sometimes these mothers will steal from their pups prompted this new study because researchers wanted to know, are mother dogs altruistic or are they competitive when it comes to their pups? And how did they set up the study to look at mom-pup conflict? Well, they looked at a group of dogs in India, and the researchers a couple times a week would throw them food. they find a mother with a few puppies. Sometimes they would throw biscuits. Sometimes they would throw meat. And what they observed, especially in the meat scenarios, is that the mother dog often snatched the meat away from her puppies. In fact, they would jump over their pups sometimes to grab a piece and sometimes bite their pups if they were fighting over a piece. So certainly not a lot of evidence for altruism in these street dogs. And they compared this to how the mother dog behaved when they tossed biscuits. Was there a big difference there? Right. So the biscuits, there wasn't as much fighting. And this could be because dogs are very dependent on meat. Now, wolves, which dogs evolve from, are completely dependent on meat. Dogs themselves are mostly dependent on meat, but they can eat carbohydrates, which wolves can't really digest. What is this trade-off? So if they're more aggressive about meat, less aggressive about biscuits, does that say something about, you know, how much the mother dog can care about her offspring and, and her own nutritional status if she's had young recently? Well, you know, remember the point of evolution really is, if we can ascribe a point to evolution, it's really to get as many of your genes in the gene pool as possible. So one way the mother dog does this is having pups. And obviously she doesn't want her pups to starve to death. Otherwise, she's not going to get her genes into the gene pool. But on the other hand, she needs to have several more rounds of pups. And if she starves to death, she's not going to be able to do that. So for her, it's a bit of a calculation. Yes, I want my pups to survive. But once they get to a certain age, I'm going to be much more likely to take food from them. I have to stop thinking about them and start thinking about my next potential round of offspring. How can these observations about street dogs tell us more about the domestication of dogs thousands of years ago? Well, one thing we still don't understand about dog domestication is how it happened. One idea is that humans, early humans, just grabbed some wolf puppies and tame them, and eventually those became domesticated dogs. But another idea is a much more passive mode of domestication where wolves sort of followed us around, maybe from campsite to campsite, feeding off our scraps. And over time, the wolves that got closer and closer to our scraps and thus closer and closer to us sort of self-domesticated. And this study sort of lends credence to this latter hypothesis because it suggests that wolves were highly motivated to get this meat that maybe humans were throwing away. And therefore, we didn't need to abduct wolf puppies because wolves were already very motivated to sort of co-mingle with us and get these snacks. Okay, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about trying to create a better tasting lettuce. We've also got a story about why meat from quickly killed fish lasts longer than meat from stressfully slaughtered fish. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about what the U.S. presidential candidates think about climate change and what they want to do about it, or even if they want to acknowledge it. <laughs> also a story about why a new vaccination strategy is stirring controversy in Italy. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, 
at news.sciencemag.org. Humans are expert learners. In order to make sense of the world, we categorize novel objects and concepts quickly. But it takes computers a lot more work. Machine learning algorithms for artificial intelligence have been working toward human-like learning capacities for some time now. But this week, Brendan Lake discusses a new computational model that takes a different approach to rival human learning abilities. So Brendan, as humans, we're pretty good at learning generalizations based on just a single example. Explain this phenomenon to me. People can often learn a new concept, a new type of thing from just one or a handful of examples. This ability actually begins in childhood when children are learning the meaning of words in their native language. And a child often just needs to see a few chairs, a few hairbrushes, a few scooters, etc., before grasping the basics of the word and usually acquiring the ability to use the word approximately correctly. Maybe they'll confuse a chair and a couch, but they basically get it right. And in adulthood, we don't have to learn new words or new concepts every day like a child does, yet the ability remains. So I'll give you an example. When they introduced the Segway, the Segway vehicle, you probably just needed to see one image of a Segway or one person riding it down the street. And then basically, aha, you, you have it. You could recognize a new Segway, even if it looked different, had bigger tires, was stylistically different, different colors, different features, but you could still recognize it. And that's what we mean by this you know, remarkable human ability to learn a new concept from a single example or a handful of examples. Interesting. So why use machine learning for this kind of pattern recognition and generalization? And where did traditional machine learning models fall short of what human minds can do? There's been a lot of recent progress in AI and machine learning in the last few years. And this includes the development of high-performance systems for recognizing objects and images, like your home photos, for instance. We now have systems that can recognize cats or a chair or a motorcycle in an image. And why use machine learning for this type of system? It's a lot easier to learn a system from examples than it is to code a set of rules to classify cats from chairs, for instance. So you provide the computer with images, with labels, telling the computer what's in it if your task is image recognition, and you let the algorithm figure out the best solution. So despite a lot of really exciting, genuine progress, especially in the last few years, for most interesting types of natural concepts, people are still better learners. And I mentioned earlier that people often need just one or a handful of examples to learn a new concept, where most algorithms typically need tens or hundreds of examples, a lot more data than people do. And after learning something new, people can generalize in richer and more powerful ways than traditional algorithms typically do. So while most algorithms stop at recognition, people go on to apply their knowledge in other ways. They might recognize the most important parts and relations in the object. For instance, you see the Segway and you notice the wheels and the motor and, and the handlebars and you know how all these things connect and relate. A person could draw or generate a new example. You could sketch a new Segway that looks different than the one that you saw. Or you could even imagine a new type of vehicle inspired by vehicles you already know. So people learn quickly and they generally apply their knowledge in richer ways. Okay, Brendan, so I have to ask, why teach computers to be as adept at generalizing or classifying as people? <laughs> I think there are two answers here, which are also related to the dual goals behind the work and other types of work like this, where one goal is to better understand human learning. 
The other goal we have is to develop new, more human-like learning algorithms. I think one of the best ways to understand a human ability is to try to build a computational model that can perform the same task that people do. In machine learning and AI, and this is speaking to the second goal, if we want to develop algorithms that not just predict, but understand and explain data, I think we have to continue to look at and be inspired by the best example of intelligence that we have, human beings. So in your paper, you developed a computational model that attempts to overcome the shortcomings of traditional machine learning models in order to get computers to learn and generalize based on just a single example or several examples of handwritten characters from the world's alphabets. What were your objectives and why use handwritten characters? We aim to capture some of the human learning abilities that I mentioned for a wide range of simple visual concepts. As you said, handwritten characters picked from alphabets around the world. These letters provided a large number of novel, cognitively natural concepts for people and machine learning algorithms to learn about. And while simple, people are still better at learning these concepts than machines. You may only need to see one example of a Tibetan letter or see the euro symbol for a first time, and again, you basically have it. Yet, these characters, these concepts are simple enough that we have some hope at reverse engineering the types of computations people might be performing when they learn. And it provides a fair setting for comparing human and machine learning. If we had chosen full visual scenes, such as a street scene in New York City, people obviously have an advantage over machines because so much of the brain is devoted to visual processing and people have a lifetime of experience with visual objects. If we'd chosen concepts based on financial data, the machines would probably have an advantage because they're better at crunching numbers and these concepts are less intuitive. But the characters seem to provide a relatively level playing field and we also hope to generate insights that would generalize to other domains. Okay, so how does your model work, and how is it different from the more traditional machine learning models? Traditional machine learning models often take a statistical pattern recognition approach, where they treat concepts as patterns of pixels or configurations of features. And then the learning problem is about finding and recognizing patterns. For instance, if you want to recognize an A, the algorithm would detect patterns of pixels in the image that provide evidence that an A is present in an image. Our more human-inspired approach treats concepts as models of the world, simple models of the world, and then learning becomes a process of model building or explaining the data. We called our algorithm Bayesian program learning, and here concepts are represented as simple programs where program is used in the standard way, like computer code that a programmer would write. And to give an example, the letter A is represented by code that, when you run it, generates new examples of the letter A. And it does so with a set of virtual pen strokes that are a bit like how people would draw an A. The program doesn't have to be coded by a person. The algorithm programs itself. So that's the machine learning part. It searches for code that could plausibly generate the data. And the code is probabilistic, so it can handle noise if you want to do recognition, and it can perform some of the more creative tasks that we looked at in this paper. Interesting. So you had the model complete a visual Turing test. What does that mean? One of the more distinctive aspects of this work is our focus on more generative and more creative tasks. Inspired by Alan Turing's famous paper from 1950 about a criteria for machine intelligence, we compared the behavior of humans and machines like our algorithm by means of visual Turing test. 
where we asked people in the algorithm to perform exactly the same task. And then we asked judges, human judges, to try to identify which is the machine and which is the person. We looked at this for several different tasks, including generating new examples of a concept. For instance, you get a new letter from the Tibetan alphabet and you need to generate new examples of that particular letter. And also generating whole new concepts where we showed the algorithm and people a set of letters, for instance, from the Tibetan alphabet and asked them to quickly produce a new letter that looks like it may belong to that alphabet. And in most cases in these visual Turing tests, the judges had difficulty distinguishing whether the behavior was from people or whether the behavior was from the algorithm. So it means that the model was able to see an example of a new concept that it's never seen before, like a foreign letter, and learn enough about it from that single example to be able to, you know, roughly reproduce behavior that appears human-like, whether it's generating a new example of that particular letter, whether it's deciding how to draw that letter for the first time in terms of the pen strokes and the order and direction of those pen strokes, or whether it's drawing a new letter that resembles some other letters. So the model is able to get enough information to fool judges into thinking that it could be a person for that set of tasks. So how do you plan to test your model further? That's a great question. There's a lot of different directions that we're thinking about pursuing. The work raises some natural developmental questions where we'd like to evaluate how children classify examples of new letters, especially if they're these children at the cusp of learning how to write or they have different amounts of writing experience. It's possible, and this is speculation, that they could change the way they think about letters from other alphabets, going more from the statistical pattern recognition feature learning type model to something that sees richer causal structure in characters like the algorithm that we were studying here. Another direction that we're interested in going is brain imaging, where we can ask questions about neural representation. Can we identify neural representations that relate to aspects of our model, like pen strokes or relations, especially in motor and action-oriented areas of the brain? And another point that's important to make is that even for these simple visual concepts, these handwritten characters, the model still doesn't see as much structure in the characters that people do. People see optional elements. For instance, some people write the letter seven with a horizontal crossbar in the middle and some people don't. And the model doesn't capture things like that yet. It also doesn't have an explicit understanding of parallel lines or symmetry. And these are things that people see and we would need more sophisticated types of programs to represent this additional structure, even for these simple concepts. Cool. So what other artificial intelligence problems can your model be applied to, Brendan? Yes. As we were testing the model and uh, developing it, we identified three core ingredients that are important for the model performance. The first ingredient we call compositionality, which is an old idea that representation should be built up from simpler primitives. So in the case of characters, these are the pen strokes and relations in terms of how you represent a car. It's in terms of the parts of a car. Another critical ingredient was causality, which is representing in an abstract way the causal structure behind where these objects come from. In this case, it's the process of writing for handwritten characters. And the last core ingredient was something we called learning to learn, which is this idea that knowledge or previous learning from related concepts can be used to help learn new concepts. And these principles may help explain how we learn and use other types of concepts in different domains and how we learn quickly, especially for 
a person learning a new spoken word, if you hear an unfamiliar name for the first time, or if you see a new gesture, maybe the first time you saw a high five, people can recognize new examples of those words or new examples of that gesture, and they can even produce a semblance of the concept themselves, even if it's not perfect. And the principles that I mentioned, we hope will be helpful for explaining these abilities too in other domains and may also help explain rapid learning for more general classes of objects like vehicles, furniture, tools, and other common objects. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Brendan. Thanks, Suzanne. Brendan Lake and his colleagues write about a new computational model for human-level concept learning this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.